How many of you have read through Lamentations this week, including today? Well, that's not too good, because that's a short book, and we all could have read that today. I'm sorry that you haven't read this. I hope you will. This is one of the unusual books of Scripture. This book follows the book of Jeremiah properly because it's written by Jeremiah, the prophet, who was also a priest. And it is the lamentations of Jeremiah as he wept over the city of Jerusalem following its desolation and captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. The Septuagint version of this, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, uh, begins with a brief uh, notation to that effect, that as Jeremiah went up on the hillside and sat overlooking the desolate city, he uttered these lamentations, which are recorded for us here. And as you read through this uh, interesting book, you'll find many foreshadowings of the weeping of another over the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Recall in our Lord's last week, as he went up to the Mount of Olives and sat looking out over the city, it's recorded that he wept over Jerusalem, saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stoneth the prophets and killeth those that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thee as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you would not. And the tears ran down his face as he looked out over the city that had rejected him, that knew not the hour of their visitation, and had turned their back upon the one who was their Messiah and their Deliverer. Now, you find foreshadowings of our Lord's ministry in this letter, in this book of, Jer- of uh, Jeremiah's, The Lamentation. For instance, in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 12, there's a, well, even the first verse, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. This is highly suggestive, of course, of our Lord's weeping over the city. And then verse 12 Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow. This would certainly bring to the believing heart an immediate remembrance of the cross and those who who, who watched the Lord as he hung there on it. And then in chapter 2, verse 15, uh, The Lord flouted all my might... No, I'm sorry, chapter 2, I'm in verse chapter 1. Chapter 2, all who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. That again, recalling the mockery of the, of the multitude at the cross. Then in chapter 3, verse 14, I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the burden of their songs all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. And... Uh, Then again, verse 19 of chapter 3. Remember my affliction and my bitterness, the wormwood and the gall. And verse 30 of that chapter. Let him give his cheek to the smiter and be filled with insults. This recalls Isaiah's prophecy. He gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to those who plucked forth the hair. And this was fulfilled in the smiting of the soldiers of our Lord when he was before Pilate for judgment. So that this uh, this uh, little book captures 
the note of agony, of sorrow, of, of suffering that was also present so much in our Lord's ministry at the cross that earned him the title, A Man of Sorrows and Acquainted with Grief. Now, this book of Lamentations is very interestingly put together. It's unusual in this respect. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. It begins with Aleph, which is the equivalent of our A, and it ends with Tau, which is the equivalent of our T. And the letter Z, by the way, comes about in the middle in Hebrew. And in, uh, in this uh, book of Jeremiah's Lamentations, the first chapter... Uh, first two chapters are an acrostic. In fact, the first two chapters and chapter four are an acrostic, each one consisting of 22 letters, and each letter, each verse, beginning with one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, right on down through, beginning with Alpha, uh, Aleph, and ending with Tau. And chapter 3 is a very interesting one in that it consists of 66 verses uh, in couplets of threes, or triads of threes, I guess I should say. And uh, how do you have a couplet of three? And in which every one of the three verses making up each triad begins with a uh, the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet, but all the way through you have groups of threes, uh, making 22 groups all together that use each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So this has been a very carefully devised uh, book. It has been written very, very carefully uh, according to the uh, rules of Hebrew poetry. The last chapter, chapter 5, does not follow this acrostic plan, but it does have 22 verses, even though they do not begin with all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet as the other ones do. Now, uh, this is uh, an interesting structure, but more than that, the content of this book is very, very interesting. For this is a study in sorrow, a hymn of heartbreak. This is the kind of a book that you would read when sorrow strikes your own heart, as will come to all of us at times. And it's very instructive to read the lamentations of Jeremiah when you're in a day of sorrow. As Jeremiah sat looking out over the city, he saw the desolations of this city, the utter uh, wasted conditions that were prevailing. And he remembered the terrible, bloody battle by which uh, Nebuchadnezzar took this city and sacked it and destroyed uh, the uh, temple and, uh, and uh, killed the inhabitants of it. And in memory, he's going back over these times. Now, each of these chapters... Uh, stresses and develops a particular aspect of sorrow. The first chapter brings us to a, it gives us a description of the utter depths of sorrow, the desolation of spirit that sorrow makes upon the human heart. The sense of abandonment, of utter, complete uh, loneliness of heart. And uh, to read this through, you can see how vividly the uh, the prophet has captured this feeling as he's pouring out the feelings of his own heart uh, as he looks out over the city, uh, rem remembering the days of joy and then how uh, the city has, uh, the people have gone into exile and the enemy has vanquished it and the city has been set on fire and all the desolations. And he says in verse 16, for these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears. 
for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my courage. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. And it's a marvelous pen of description of the desolation of sorrow. And then chapter 2 gives us a description of the thoroughness of judgment. Beginning at the very beginning of this chapter, you have a description of how how completely the the armies of Nebuchadnezzar had utterly devastated this city. And uh, only the prophet doesn't describe it to the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, but to the hand of the Lord. He sees behind the immediate human instrument to what God is doing. And as you read through the chapter, you can see how one by one he points out how everything has been destroyed. Nothing has been left. Everything has been overturned. There's nothing he can put his hand upon that uh, has been preserved. The city has been utterly devastated. And it's a picture of the thoroughness of the judgment of the the armies of God. Then in chapter 3, this uh, long chapter of 66 verses, where you have the the triad of the alphabet going through, uh, the prophet speaks of his own reaction, the personal pain of himself as an individual contemplating this. Begins, you, you, you notice, with those words. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He's made my flesh and my skin waste away and broken my bones. He's besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation and has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. And throughout this whole passage, it's all his own personal reaction and personal sense of pain and distress as he looks out over the ruined city. And then in chapter 4, you have the what we might call the incredibility of judgment. That is the unbelievingness of this situation. The attitude of, uh, of, of uh, unbelief as the prophet is rethinking again all that's happened. And you'll notice, any of you who have been through times of sorrow, that these uh, these aspects come upon you from time to time in a time of grief. First, the sense of utter desolation, and then a, an awareness of uh, complete devastation, and then a sense of deep personal pain, and then, like the prophet here, a, a kind of an unbelief that this kind of thing could happen, a sense of incredulity, incredibility as he's contemplating the destruction of the city. The precious sons of Zion, he says, worth their weight in gold. Yet how are they reckoned as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hand? As he looks out over and sees the bodies of the of the sons of Israel lying in the streets, nothing but just clay, dust, these precious young people that have been destroyed in this. And he says in verse 9, Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger. There had come a famine in the city that had totally distressed it. The victims of hunger who pined away stricken by want of the fruits of the field. And so terrible had been this siege that in verse 10 he says, The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food in the destruction of the daughter of my people. One of the terrible sieges of earth. And uh, as the report went abroad, he said it was unbelievable 
Verse 12, the kings of the earth did not believe, or any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. And yet it was done. And his incredulity grows as he goes on in this chapter. He's just simply astounded that this kind of thing could happen. And in chapter 5, you have the utter humiliation of judgment. The feeling that... that uh, You've just been uh, disgraced. Uh, hardly dare lift up your head again that such a thing like this could happen. He says, remember, O Lord, what's befallen us. Behold and see our disgrace. <laughs> our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to aliens. We become orphans, fatherless, mothers like widows. We even have to pay for the water we drink and the wood we get must be bought. With a yoke on our necks, we're hard driven. We're weary and given no rest. And he goes on to describe how the young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and the boys stagger under the loads of wood. The old men have quit the city gate, and the young men their music. The joy of their hearts has ceased. The crown, he says, has fallen from our heads. Woe to us, for we have sinned. What a description, you see, of the utter despair of the human spirit as it's in the grip of a time of deep distress and sorrow. And yet in the midst of every one of these chapters, there's an insight granted of uh, revelation of the character of uh, a lesson that God is teaching by sorrow that would never have been learned otherwise. That's the thing to look for in this book. As you read through this chapter, these chapters, not only is there this vivid description of a sorrowing prophet and a degraded city, but there's also each aspect of sorrow teaches a lesson. Now, I'm going to show you those in a moment, but I want to point stress this for a moment. This, you see, the design of this book is to teach us what might be called the therapy of trouble. What sorrow teaches us. Now, everywhere in Scripture we're told that uh, pain and suffering are God's instructors with which he teaches us lessons that could not be learned otherwise. And from this comes strength of character. Now, don't be surprised that this is true. We read in Hebrews that of the Lord Jesus, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And there are things which the Lord Jesus had to learn only by living as a man through the times of suffering and sorrow that he experienced. And if he was not exempt from that, why should we ever expect us to be? You see, this is why it's never right for a Christian to say, as so many of us do say, when some uh, trouble strikes, why should this happen to me? Well, why shouldn't it happen to you? As Hebrews 12, 11, 12 reminds us, it's the mark that God loves. He sent it in order to discipline us, to teach us, to train us. And this is what happens here. Uh, each chapter reveals one particular aspect of sorrow as teaching one particular lesson of grace. In chapter 1, where you have this sense of desolation and an abandonment of spirit, in verse 18, 
the prophet suddenly says, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. The Lord is in the right. Huh. You see, while he was looking out at the city and feeling this awful sense of desolation, the depths of sorrow, suddenly he realizes that this is a sign that God is right. God is right. And he says, I have rebelled against his word. That's the problem. Now, that's a great lesson to learn. For most of us are in the habit of blaming God, either directly or indirectly, for whatever happens to us. And our implication is usually, well, I don't know why this happens to me. After all, I'm, I've am i been doing all right. I've been doing my best. I've been trying hard. And still these kind of things happen. And our implication is God is unjust. God is not right. Now, the apostle says, let God be true and every man a liar. That is, it's impossible for God not to be right. <laughs> impossible. It's impossible for God, for man to be more just than God. Because our very feelings of justice are derived from him. It's impossible for man to be more compassionate than God. Because our feelings of compassion come from him. You see, it's impossible for us ever to sit in judgment on God. God is right. And it's only as the, the prophet here is brought to the utter sense of desolation that he sees this. As long as he had anything to prop himself up with, he could find fault with God. But when he's left utterly desolate, then he realizes, well, the Lord is right. It's I'm, that, it's me who is wrong. Then in chapter 2, he learns a, an even further advance on this. In this chapter, he's so aware of the thoroughness of judgment, how meticulously God has gone through the city with the armies of Nebuchadnezzar and absolutely laid everything, uh, destroyed everything. How ruthless, if you want to put it, God has been, the Lord has been. But then suddenly, in the midst of it, he comes to another insight. These, these verses suddenly appear in the midst of his, his, his lamentations. Verse 17, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his threat. In other words, God is faithful. As he ordained long ago, he has demolished without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foe. Suddenly he realizes that this is consonant with the character of God. God is, is faithful to his word. If he says he does something, he'll do it. And nothing can make him change. And if you look back in the history of this nation, you'll discover in the book of Deuteronomy, way back in the days of Moses, God had said to Moses, Moses, if your people, if my people walk in obedience to me, and love me, and follow me, I'll pour unlimited blessing upon them. I'll open the windows of heaven and just simply bless them till they can't stand it. But if they turn, if they go aside, I'll plead with them and send prophets to them and work with them and have patience with them. And the record is for 400 years, God put up with the intransigence of Israel. But he said, if they go aside and turn and follow after other gods, I'll raise up another nation and come in and devastate the land and carry them into captivity. That's exactly what God had said. 
And that's exactly what he did. And it's interesting that it's Jeremiah who predicts how long that captivity would be. It would last, he is told, 70 years. Why 70? Why 70? Well, back under the law, you remember that one of the provisions God had asked of Israel when they came into the land was that they would allow the land itself to rest fallow every seventh year. Every seventh year they were not to plow their soil, but to let it rest and not use it at all. A very practical principle of agricultural conservation. And uh, during the, on the sixth year, in order to make up for that lack of crops, the Lord would bless them with superabundant crops, and they'd have enough food to carry them over that seventh year. But Israel never once obeyed that. Never once did they ever observe that commandment of God. And on the seventh year, even after they first entered the land, they used the land and they did it all the way through. So that the God had, in a sense, they had robbed God of 70 years of rest for the land. 490 years they had spent using the land. And so God sent them out of it and he gave the land its rest for 70 years. How faithful is God, you see, to his promise. The Lord is utterly faithful. There is a widespread conception abroad that God is so loving, so tender-hearted, that he just gives in when you pressure him a little bit and he won't do what he says he's going to do. But that has been ever put to the lie by the greatest one of the greatest verses in the Bible, Romans 8.32. Do you know it? He that spared not his own son. Think of that. He that spared not his own son. When he was made sin for us, he would not spare it. That's how inflexible God is in following through his word. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And yet that verse ends in glory, doesn't it? How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, one word, one side of it is just as true as the other. And so the apostle learned, or the prophet learned, that God is faithful by the thoroughness of judgment. Then in chapter 3, where you have the uh, personal pain of this prophet, he comes to a tremendous passage. Since this is such a lengthy passage, you would expect a little longer revelation of insight, and we get it here. In verse 22, suddenly he says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my Portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when he has it laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter and be filled with insults, for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion. According to the abundance of his steadfast love, 
for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the sons of men. In many ways, there is no more beautiful passage in all the Bible than that, revealing the heart of God, the compassion at the heart of God. Judgment, as Isaiah says, is his strange work. He doesn't like to do it. He does not willingly afflict or grieve the sons of men. His mercies are fresh every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And as the prophet thought of his own pain, there suddenly came to him this remembrance. Yet behind it all is the work of love. God has not desolated this city in order to leave it in desolation. God desolated it because it was heading the wrong way. And if it had gone on, it would have been a cancer on the earth. But he devastated it in order that he might be able later to restore it and to set it back up again in, in, jo- in joy and peace and blessing. And that's what happened. The Lord does not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he'll have compassion. And then in chapter 4, as he's meditating on the unbelievable character of judgment, his eyes are just filled with astonishment and incredulity as he's thinking about what's happened. On the very last verse of the chapter, he suddenly says, The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Now, the daughter of Zion is Israel. The daughter of Edom is a reference to the country bordering Israel that was always a thorn in their flesh. And by the way, in Scripture, it's always used as a picture of the flesh in man. That uh, they were, the Edomites were related to Israel. They were the children of Esau. And Esau is always a picture of the flesh. And uh, what the prophet is saying is uh, God will set a limit to his punishment of his own. He never drives them too far. He never disciplines them too far. There's a limit. It's accomplished. He will keep them in exile no longer. But as to the flesh, it has been utterly set aside. And Edom will be punished here, and God will uncover its sins because of its iniquities. And then you come to the last chapter, and in chapter 5, we have this amazing uh, description of the humility, humiliation that comes from judgment. But in the, in the end of this, he comes to another flash of insight. Verse 19, But thou, O Lord, dost reign forever. Thy throne endures to all generations. What does this mean? Well, it means that though man may even perish in sorrow. God endures. And because God endures, the great purpose and workings of God endure. God never does anything temporarily. All that God does endures forever. We read that in in Ecclesiastes. Whatsoever God doeth, he doeth forever. God is, all the workings of God are permanent. And all that the prophet means by this is that 
what God has taught him by means of sorrow, he now suddenly realizes, will have a practical use, even though his physical life is ended, even though this meant the end of his life, even though sitting there in weeping desolation of spirit, looking out over the city, he himself were to end his life there. He didn't. He went down to Egypt and he died down there. But even if it were, why God's purposes endure, and God is simply preparing now for a work yet to come. God is not limited by time. This is what he means. God is eternal. His throne, his authority endures to all generations. What does this mean? Well, this means that the prophet is realizing that after he has been through this time of grief and sorrow, he has learned truth about God that has made him absolutely impervious to any other kind of test. (laughs) Once he's been through this, nothing can reach him, nothing can upset him, nothing can trouble him, nothing can touch him or overthrow him. He's now ready for anything. And in God's great purpose, there will be opportunity to use it. That's what he means. I often think of those words of our Lord. He recorded in the 14th chapter of Luke. When he tells that uh, his disciples, you remember those, that, uh, those two parables about the man who went out to do battle and meet a king that was coming against him with an army. And he said, what man of you who will do that? will not sit down first and count the cost. Uh, Building a tower will not count the cost to see if he has enough to finish the building. Or going out against an army, he doesn't count the cost to see if he has enough men to carry this through to a successful conclusion. And usually we interpret that as our Lord saying to us, now look, if you're going to become a Christian, you better think it through. You better count the cost. You better see if you really mean business and you're going to carry this thing through. Nothing could be further from his meaning. He does not mean that. If that passage is read very carefully, what he's saying is, I am the one who has to count the cost. He's saying, I, as your Lord and Master, do not go out to build a tower without sitting down first and counting the cost. Nor do I go out against to do battle with a fierce king without... First, being sure that I have what it takes to win this battle. And he's explaining why he uses such severity to his disciples. He's explaining to them why he says to them, except a man forsake his mother and father and and son and daughter and so on, he cannot be my disciple. They were wondering. And he's saying, you wonder why I'm so severe with you? I'll tell you. It's because I'm going out to do a great work of building. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'm going out to do battle with a great foe. A foe of cleverness and ruthlessness and wiliness. And I have to be sure that the men who follow me are men who I can depend on. I have to count the cost. That's why I say these things to you. In other words, I have to get you ready for a battle that's going to go on far beyond this life. And therefore, I want men who who will be mine, who will be absolutely wholly mine. 
and I can train them and prepare them and teach them and bring them through trials and hardships and teach them the great principles that when we finally get up against it and up against the real conflict, I'll have men that I can depend on. I'll, I'll have counted the cost. Now, that's what he's talking about here. You see, when we learn our lessons down here, if we learn how to handle sorrow and heartache and desolation of spirit in this this limited way here, we're being prepared so that nothing can overthrow us. Unconquerable. Overcomers. And in the battle that God faces God in the subjugation of the entire universe. I often think of that. What lies beyond? Is not God preparing us now to do a, a mightier work in the future? Is he not getting us ready to carry on a, a, a conflict that will reach out to the uttermost reaches of this vast universe of us? Of course he is. God never does anything. Uh, without purpose. He never creates anything without intending to use it. And all this lies ahead of us. And that's why it's so important that we learn how to face up to sorrow and learn what God would have us learn in the midst of it. Our Father, thank you for this word of lamentations. It's lesson to our hearts. May we learn to be strong for thy name's sake. To be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. To be ready for that great day and that greater conflict yet to come. In Christ's name, amen.